In the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, you see a beautiful picture of the martyrs of the church, now safe and sound under the altar in God's presence, earnestly and sincerely praying for God's justice upon the heads of the persecutors of the church. And no sooner do they pray in their secure place under the altar, having laid down their lives for Christ, then God opens a great seal, and there is an earthquake. Stars fall, that is, kings and great men of the earth hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. And God begins the vindication of his name and of his martyrs. What we'll begin looking at today and continue on in future weeks is a study of one of the most exciting times in the history of the Christian church, and that is the time of the 16th and 17th centuries. The last sermon in this history series, I began with the reign of Henry VIII. In talking about Henry VIII, I also discussed the nature of Puritanism, what it is and how it is being caricatured in our day. Remember, Henry VIII came to the throne as a Roman Catholic, but then because he fell out of love with Catherine of Aragon and wanted a divorce from her, having his conscience smite him, supposedly, because he claimed it was an unbiblical marriage, even though he had been married for 20 years. And having fallen in love with Anne Boleyn, he appeals to the Pope to annul his first marriage so he can have, be divorced and then marry Anne. Well, the Pope doesn't allow for it because Catherine of Aragon was niece, niece to King Charles I of Spain, who also held the title Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, a devout Catholic and great contributor to the church. Therefore, Pope Paul III couldn't afford to anger Charles, and so he did not grant Henry's divorce. Nevertheless, being determined to do so, proud, stubborn, self-willed man that he was, Henry VIII separated to form the Church of England from the Church of Rome. The position as Archbishop of Canterbury had been vacant since the death of Wareham, so the obscure cleric and secret Lutheran, Thomas Cramner, was put forth as his replacement. But doing so required permission from the Pope. So Henry sent his letter of intent to appoint Cramner as Archbishop of Canterbury, and Pope Paul III granted Henry's request. Cranmer then quickly held court and passed ruling on the great matter of Henry VIII, declaring his marriage to Catherine of Aragon null and void on the grounds of canonical law and an incorrect papal dispensation. And his marriage to Anne Boleyn was valid. In fact, they were married secretly already. Is a very messy ordeal indeed. Anne had promised to give him his greatest desire, 
the one thing Catherine couldn't, male heirs to the throne. Unfortunately, Anne only gave Henry miscarriages, stillbirths, and a single living daughter, Elizabeth, who later became Queen of England. Henry's council ultimately arrested five men, including George Boleyn, Anne's brother, and Anne herself, charging all with high treason on the grounds of adultery with the queen and incest. They were all found guilty, including Anne, and executed in May 1538. After separating from the Roman Catholic Church, Henry sets himself up as the supreme head of the Church of England, responsible to maintain order, to make sure that whatever he wanted preached was preached, and to defend it from all heretics and false teachers. Remember, though, God used that to commence a great reformation in Britain, because now Britain was free for a while from the stranglehold of the Roman Catholic Church. But Henry VIII was not really a Protestant. Henry VIII was still a Roman Catholic without the Pope. It was the Pope he didn't like, but he loved Roman Catholic doctrine. In fact, he wrote a book refuting the sacraments and attacking Martin Luther, for which he and all his descendants after him have been given the title by the papacy, Defender of the Faith. So bear in mind, now Henry VIII was no friend of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ but rather a persecutor of her. He saw himself as the head of the church, and he required all ministers and members of the church to submit to his supremacy or suffer the consequences. He hated the Pope, but he terrorized all Roman Catholics left in England who still believed in the Pope's supremacy. He imprisoned, tortured, and executed many Roman Catholic preach, pre priests, such as the Reverend James Fisher and his one-time Chancellor and Lord Privy, Sir Thomas More, whom the movie The Man of All for All Seasons was made. Both were imprisoned and executed for their refusal to sign an oath, submitting to both the legitimacy of his marriage to Anne Boleyn and to him, as supreme head of the Church of England. He trampled on English liberties as no other king of England had done prior to that time, causing much poverty and unemployment by increased taxation. He also suppressed every abbey, seized their land and possessions, and increased the royal exchequer by the millions of pounds. He hired mercenary French Huguenots, Protestants, to carry out the suppressions and the destruction of religious relics and artifacts for fear that his own men were largely Roman Catholic at heart and wouldn't follow through with the king's orders. But God even uses the tyranny of kings to accomplish his purposes 
and to advance the reformation of his church. One of the things Henry VIII did after he declared himself supreme head of the Church of England was to send the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner, on a tour of the remaining monasteries and churches in the land to make sure all were now preaching good Henry VIII doctrine and no longer bowing to the Pope in Rome. So an earlier writer said concerning the result of this visitation of Cramner to all the churches, quote, it was no difficult matter to convict these popish institutions of such crimes and abomination as are now fit to be mentioned to any that were in Sodom, so that their suppression was but the sweeping away of a great moral nuisance too loathsome any longer to be endured." Unquote. That's what historian William Hetherington thought of the priesthood in Henry VIII's day. That the sweeping away of this immoral mass of priests still clinging to Rome was a tremendous benefit to the church, even though it was dictated by a tyrant, Henry VIII. Henry VIII also hated Puritans. Of course, he called them Lutherans. He called everyone who wasn't a Roman Catholic and didn't believe in him as the head of the church Lutherans. And, of course, he hated Lutherans. These Lutherans were also Calvinists. In other words, they weren't quite pure Lutherans. They followed Luther and they followed Calvin. They were, what I would say, really genuine Protestants. He hated anyone who wouldn't recognize his headship over the church, and he hated anyone who wouldn't conform to his doctrine, doctrinal formulations, which he would impose upon the church. The older Henry got, the more he separated himself from the doctrines and the goals of the Protestant Reformation, and the more he wanted to convince all of Europe that he was still, in fact, Roman Catholic in his doctrine that is, orthodox in Roman standards, even, then, even though he didn't care for the Pope. So in 1539, he and his bishop, Gardiner, pushed through a convocation of bishops and parliament, a document called the Six Articles of Faith, which have been called the Bloody Whip with Six Strings. He tried to force these six articles upon all the ministry of the Church of England, which of course included the Puritans. And the Puritans understood that as long as Henry was alive and reigned, there was no hope for theological reform. So many genuine Protestants, Lutherans to use Henry VIII's term, were persecuted or escaped to other countries because of his imposition of the six articles upon the church, saying, here is what you must preach, and here is what you must believe. Now let me tell you what the six articles or doctrines were. Article 1, maintain transubstantiation. That is, in the Mass, the bread and the wine turn into the literal flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Article 2, maintain communion in one kind. 
That is, the people could only be given the bread because the wine was considered to be too good for the people. Article 3 said all priests have to be celibate. No priest could marry. Article 4 upheld monastic vows, such as saying a vow to poverty is indeed a godly thing. Article 5 suspended private masses. In other words, giving communion privately to somebody in the hospital. And Article 6 defended confession to a priest. In other words, in order to have your sins forgiven, you had to go into a confession booth and confess your sins to a priest. And Henry said, now this is what you have to preach. This is what must be preached in all our churches and all our pulpits. Along with these six articles, he also said that if anyone preached or wrote against Article 1, which again teaches transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine become literal flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would be condemned as heretics and burned at the stake with all their property confiscated by the king. I want you to bear that in mind, and I want you to know that is why the Roman Catholic Church, as well as Henry VIII, who was a Roman Catholic without the Pope, wanted and did kill Protestants. It was mainly because they did not believe that in the Lord's Supper, the bread turns into literal flesh and wine that turns in uh, uh, wine that turns into literal blood. So anyone who preached that was to be considered a heretic and again burned at the stake. And anyone who preached against any of the other Roman Catholic doctrines, Henry said, were to suffer death as common criminals. All ministers also had to read these six articles in their pulpits at least once every four months. So in no time, 500 godly Protestant preachers were committed to the Tower of London by Henry VIII, including the godly Hugh Latimer, who was an old man by this time and was later burned at the stake. In the midst of all this, Parliament passed another remarkable act. It said that the king may make proclamations with pains and penalties which shall be obeyed as fully as any act of parliament. That is, the king of England could now make proclamations and affix the death penalty to them and execute people without giving them a fair trial. So many were arrested and put to death without ever being brought to trial. Such arbitrary tyranny had never taken place in England before. In the early days of Henry VIII, many followers of Wycliffe were executed. Remember, we studied John Wycliffe, the great man who, a couple of centuries before, translated the Bible into English, whose followers, if you remember, were called Lollards, great Calvinists, even before Calvinism. In other words, pre-reformers. At the time of Henry VIII's rule, there were still large communities of Lollards all over England. Henry hated them, and so he put many to death. Let me mention just a few of those martyred during Henry VIII's, um, Henry VIII's reign. 1517, he burned alive a man named John Brown, 
who was condemned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Gardiner, before Thomas Cramner. And let me tell you a little bit of what happened to John Brown. Before he was chained to the stake, one archbishop and one bishop had Brown's feet burned in fire until the flesh came off and there were only bones. This was done to try and get Brown to recant his Protestantism, but he confessed the truth to the last. There was a man named Richard Byfield who was in prison and beaten because of his adherence to the doctrines of Martin Luther. And he was convicted then for reading Tyndale's New Testament. There was another man named John Tewksbury, who was burned at the stake because he read Tyndale's version of the New Testament. And the list goes on and on and on. At Buckingham, there was a man named Thomas Bannard, and another by the name of James Morton, who were burned alive, simply because they dared to read the Lord's Prayer in English. Well, praise the Lord, Henry VIII eventually died. Toward the end of his life, Henry VIII became more and more viciously opposed to the Protestant Reformation, repudiating some of his earlier laws. Remember, he was the one who declared that every church shall have an English translation of the Bible, and the Bible he recommended was predominantly Tyndale's. And since Tyndale's name wasn't mentioned in his version, Henry felt he could then authorize it. But in one statute, three or four years before his death, King Henry VIII said there could be no more books of the New Testament in English, being that Tyndale's, trans Tyndale's false translation, at least he thought so, was outlawed. He said, no person shall sing or rhyme contrary to the doctrine of the six articles of faith. You couldn't even sing a song that was contrary to Catholic doctrine. And no person shall retain any English books or writings against the holy and blessed sacrament of the altar or other books abolished by the king's proclamation. He said, there shall be no annotations, commentary, or preambles in Bibles or New Testaments in English. The Bible shall not be read in English in any church, and nothing shall be taught or maintained contrary to the king's instruction. Remember now, he's the king and head of the church. So legally, it was perfectly all right for him to say, my word is law. And here is one of his statutes. If any spiritual person shall be convicted of preaching or maintaining anything contrary to the king's instructions already made or hereafter to be made, he shall for the first offense recant, for the second bear a fag faggot, that is, hot coals to his face and body, and for the third offense be burnt at the stake. Now here is popery and tyranny in its fullest extent. Henry VIII's words were as binding on the church as the Pope's canons in Rome affixed with severe, severe penalties. A more complete and arbitrary tyranny over church, state, and people possessed 
Henry VIII is, by Henry VIII, is almost impossible to even imagine. But the death of the king soon came and rescued the nation from almost unbearable tyranny. His death also gave a greater opportunity for more rapid discharge of the great work of the Protestant Reformation under Henry's young and able successor, Edward VI. There's an interesting story about Henry's death as to what he did just before he died that gives me a little hope that if I see him in heaven, I won't be totally surprised. In the closing years of Henry's life, there was great social and political unrest. And though there was a man named Thomas Cramner, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Henry's close advisor throughout his years, and one of the most famous men in English history. Toward the end of Henry's life, Cramner was becoming more and more reformed, while Henry VIII was becoming more and more hardened in his Roman Catholicism, reacting against Cramner and the Protestant Reformation. He had his own Roman Catholic, so to speak, though it was an Anglo-Catholic priest, Gardiner, who, who had taken care of him when he had any religious concerns at all. But while Henry VIII was on his deathbed, in 1547, less than hours before his death, it wasn't the Anglo-Catholic bishop he called to his side. It was Cramner. When Cramner came to his bed, after knowing Henry most of his adult life, Henry was, able, was unable to speak while dying. Whereupon, says a witness, Henry holding him with his hand did wring Cramner's hand as hard as he could. And Cramner took that as denoting Henry VIII's conversion. We one day will find out, will we not? As I said, Henry VIII was followed by Edward VI. Edward was Henry's son with his third wife, Jane Seymour, who died 10 days after giving birth to him. And he was crowned King of England at the age of nine years and four months. Edward VI was exceptional in many ways. He learned great piety. He was a godly young boy with knowledge of the world and how the world worked and in business ingenuity. He had been trained well. Henry was rather obsessive in matters concerning the succession of his young heir to the throne and had selected certain regents and advisors to effectively rule during Henry or Edward VI's minority. Some of those advisors chosen by Henry VIII were sympathetic to Roman Catholicism. But the majority of them were genuine Protestants. Now, why would Henry VIII appoint Protestants to hold most of the Privy Council positions of Edward VI's court? Well, upon the death of Henry VIII, it was Edward Seymour's nephew who became King Edward VI. Henry VIII named 16 executors of his will who were to act as Edward's counsel until he reached the age of 18, Edward Seymour being one of those. 
These executors were supplemented by 12 men of counsel who would assist the executors when they were called upon. Edward Seymour, who had overseen his nephew's care, education, and household from birth, was named Lord Protector of the Realm and Governor of the King's Person in Henry's Will. Though Jane Seymour had remained Roman Catholic, even as wife to King Edward, to, to King Henry VIII, both her brothers, Seymour, uh, um, Edward Seymour being one, were secret reformers and suspected to be heretics by Bishop Gardiner. Gardiner had been in pursuit of the Earl of Hartford, King Edward, or Edward Seymour, and had detained and examined or tortured many members of Henry's royal household, so, such as magicians, musicians, and cooks, in an effort to force a confession about Earl of Hartford, incriminating the Earl as a heretic reformer. Toward the er end of 1549, power had shifted, though, to the Protestants among Edward's counselors. In addition, two leading conservative privy counselors were removed from the center of power, Catholics, and Bishop Stephen Gardner was refused access to Henry during his last months. Also, it's important to note that Catherine Parr, Henry sixth and final wife was a quite outspoken Protestant and reformer and during her regency while Henry was in Boulogne fighting the French Queen Catherine appointed fellow reformers as tutors and chaplains to both Edward and Elizabeth's households and named Hugh Latimer as her private chaplain which Gardner had uncovered and subsequently detained the Queen's ladies for examination at the Tower of London about all this, then attempted to arrest the Queen herself. Henry actually authorized the warrant for her arrest, but when Gardner came to execute it, Henry erupted in anger, calling the bishop naive or a knave, and demanding he leave court immediately. Strange, right? And Henry advised Kate, as he called her, that the bishop was not her friend, and she should give the matter no more thought, and he rose in her eyes as the valiant king defender. So now the government of England was in the hands of the reformers, the Puritans who began immediately to relax the rigors and the tyranny of Henry's oppressive reign. Under King Edward VI, tensions began to ease a little bit, and the Reformed movement began to make rapid progress. It had a difficult time at first, because remember, the great majority of the people and the clergy in England at this time were still Roman Catholic at heart. But there were some great things God sovereignly put right with the death of Henry VIII. Three great things. You had a pious, evangelical, thoroughly Protestant king of England, 
You had a group of reformed men governing England and advising the king, and you had a powerful Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. So now the impetus of the Reform Reformation was accelerating in England. The first thing Parliament did immediately was to repeal those six articles of faith. So they were no longer law, and the persecution of the church came to an immediate stop. The prison doors were opened, and all those imprisoned for being Protestants were released. Those who were forced into exile returned home. Men such as Miles Coverdale, a great Reformation preacher, who translated the Bible into English, and John Hooper and John Rogers, who were later martyred under Bloody Mary. And now the Puritan reformers began to preach openly about the abuses of popery, as well as other Roman Catholic doctrines and practices which Henry loved. Now they were able to preach against it, against all of it. Thomas Cramner knew that a lot of the clergy were still sympathetic to Roman Catholicism. And of course, they didn't want to lose their jobs. But they had to preach something. So Cramner wisely wrote a book of homilies, which was basically a book of reformed sermons. He put it in the hands of these priests and pastors, It was solidly evangelical and Protestant, and these lazy, good-for-nothing priests didn't want to study. Some of them were even illiterate, so they just read one of Cramner's sermons every Sunday. So the truth was getting out. Injunctions were being passed, encouraging the preaching and the teaching of the pure scriptures. In 1547, the bishops met together and removed all the images from the churches, legalizing marriage for preachers in England, and said that both elements of the bread and the wine should be distributed during the Lord's Supper. In all of this, you can see the guiding hand of Thomas Cramner. In 1552, Cramner produced a document called the 42 Articles of Religion, that is, the 42 fundamental and reformed doctrines of the word of God. And they were published with the king's authority shortly before his death. Henry VIII was a very inconsistent man. They were based on Luther's work and were thoroughly Protestant, and they are the basis of the 39 articles of the Church of England today, which is a great evangelistic creed which is still used. But the old leaven still remained. And as Paul said, if you don't clean out the old leaven, it will eventually leaven the whole loaf. And that leaven remained. As godly as King Edward VI was, as Protestant as his counselors were, and as godly as many of the church leaders were, they still remained Erastian in their understanding of the relationship between church and state. That is, they still believed that the church was under the state's authority and that the king was the supreme head of the church as well of the state, and in both, his word was law. 
There are still Erastians among us today who want some way or another for the church to be in bed with the state. In fact, the main group in the United States who stands against Erastianism most consistently, more than any other, are Christian Reconstructionists, just like you and I. A case can be made that every other Christian political group is still influenced by Erastianism and in some way or another want to blend church with the state. Well, that was the great leavening, the great weakness of the church. All these good things that were happening, they still believed the king was the head of the church. And this led, of course, to unrest and eventually, under Bloody Mary, to persecution. Erastianism is very similar to a new heresy today within the Reformed faith called two-kingdom theology, which is the recognition that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And I basically have no trouble affirming that. But the problem is, a handful of advocates have gone on to claim that the two kingdoms are radically separate and that the values of the kingdom of God are only operative for believers and for the church, not the state or the government. In other words, God's moral standards are only for his people and not the state. Plus, the church is still under the state's authority, and we must submit. One day I will speak more to this, but I'll end here today with just a couple of comments, and next week we will look at some of the results of Erastianism on the early church. Tyrants are not strong men of integrity and statesmanship like character, but selfish, often narcissistic cowards who simply want what they want and will do whatever it takes to get what they want, even persecute and murder opponents to their schemes of megalomania. But in spite of what tyrannical men do while they're in power, God continues to unfold his story and is undeterred by their vain opposition to his agenda. Oh, beloved, always remember, God will be victorious in time and in eternity. And as, as we read in Revelation 6, he will have authority over all areas of life and he will put down all his enemies. Now at this point in time, as bad as our situation is today, we are not yet being imprisoned. Oh, some may be arrested here and there for standing in front of abortion clinics. And we're not being tortured and burned at the stake for holding to teaching and proclaiming the Reformed faith, the blessed truths of Holy Scriptures. But even if there are consequences, beloved, to boldly speaking the truth, we must not falter to do so. For we are here to please God alone, not men. And it is only He, our great God, who can condemn our souls to eternal hell. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for all those brave men and women whose shoulders we stand on today. May we stand strong against those who wish to silence the church and make it of no effect within our culture. Oh, help us to stand boldly upon your word without any compromise 
and proclaim the crown rights of Jesus Christ over every area of life. And may, may we do so for your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.